Welcome back to Just Emergencies. I'm Rebecca Richards, and after a brief hiatus in August, we're back today with the second episode of the podcast, where I'm talking sexual and reproductive health with Dr. McMillan. So the two of us sat down and we talked about what those terms mean, what tends to happen to sexual and reproductive health during global health emergencies, and in particular, we took a closer look at the Zika outbreak, what happened there, and what the role of health regulation was during that time. It's a good one, so stick around. This is Just Emergencies, the podcast where we show that global health emergencies are anything but just. In each episode, we'll explore an issue, question, or event that makes us think about global health emergencies, humanitarian crises, and how to best respond to them. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Katrina McMillan to talk about sexual and reproductive health in global health emergencies and humanitarian crises. Katrina is a senior research fellow in medical law and ethics at the University of Edinburgh Law School, and a lot of her research focuses on sexual and reproductive health. The paper she's currently working on, for example, takes a look at reproductive health regulation in Latin America. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for joining me and talking about sexual and reproductive health in global health emergencies. Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So let's get right into it and sort of set the scene a little bit. So when we're talking about sexual and reproductive health, what are we talking about? So sexual and reproductive health covers a broad range of issues associated with the kind of physical, mental and social well-being relating to our reproductive systems. Medically speaking, these issues can range from things that typically come to mind to like sexually transmitted infections like HIV, chlamydia, etc. But also things like family planning and maternal health and procedures such as circumcision and abortion. Mental and social well-being is also a huge part of sexual and reproductive health. As we know, sexual violence is a huge problem for mental and physical well-being worldwide. So in England, uh, for example, um, about 20% of women and 4% of men have experienced some kind of sexual violence since the age of 16. Uh, But the UN actually estimates that worldwide that percentage of women is 35%. And... Broadly speaking, what happens to sexual and reproductive health during global health emergencies and why? Um, Does it affect some groups more than others, for example? Mm. So as we know, all forms of health become more at risk during global health emergencies. But sexual and reproductive health is one of the areas that's particularly at risk um, as more immediate emergency care takes priority over other forms of health care. This means that there can be a lack of access to advice and products as simple as sanitary towels and condoms. We know that global health emergencies tend to have a disproportionate effect on women and children. For example, women and girls in refugee camps and crisis zones are at increased risk of sexual violence and unintended pregnancies. Um, In northeast Syria, for example, the UNFPA, which is the UN Population Fund, um, have recently reported they've had to procure 5,000 solar lamps to improve safety at night uh, when women and girls may face increased risk of physical and sexual violence. 
Also, according to the WHO, eight out of the ten countries with the highest maternal mortality ratios in the world are in fragile circumstances and are affected by current or recent conflict. Neonatal mortality rates are at the highest in these kind of areas affected by humanitarian emergencies. The thing is with all of this that a lot of responsibility in general, whether or not we're in a global health emergency or not, a lot of responsibility falls on women for decisions about family planning, birth and childcare. As we all know, women carry children, women are often seen as the caregiver, and most contraception at the moment has to be taken by or inserted into women, though in the exception to that that's being used at the moment is the male condom. And of course women menstruate, so there's a lot of burden on women in these situations. But in general there's a lack of support in terms of access or even information about sexual reproductive health for women, so it's difficult for women to make informed decisions, um, generally speaking, let alone in global health emergencies and crises when these things are all amplified. Yeah, when, when you talked about the lack of support there, um, you know, for, for girls and women, a couple of things that I came across in my research, uh, which surprised me was even the support when you're giving it, it can be quite complex and a lot of things need to be taken into consideration. For example, after the Boxing Day tsunami, um, sanitary towels were often handed out by male aid workers mm. and women didn't feel comfortable claiming them. And I think during a flood in Bangladesh, there wasn't a space that was made available for women to properly clean and dry their sanitary towels or the cloths that they were using as sanitary towels. Mm. So they were walking around with, with damp sanitary towels and you know got various health problems because of that. So it's a very complex issue. Absolutely. Um, so as I mentioned in the intro, some of your current research looks at reproductive health and its regulation in Latin America. Now, obviously, Zika was an issue there, and the response to Zika caused quite a bit of controversy. So could you just explain what happened there? So the most recent Zika virus pandemic, there's been a few throughout history, but the most recent one began in 2015, and it mainly affected Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, the virus itself, for those that don't know, is primarily transmitted by mosquito bites. And for the person that's been bitten by the mosquito, um, at worst, the Zika virus can present itself as a bit like a flu, um, with migraines and stiffness and sore joints, and it will end after about a week or so. Um, but the problem is with the Zika virus for if you catch it while you're pregnant, um, and these can cause health issues such as fetal infection and microcephaly, which leaves babies with neurological damage and misshapen heads. So as a result of the outbreak, there was an increased demand for abortions in Latin American countries. But uh, the response of many of the Latin American governments to this outbreak um, was to recommend that women avoid or postpone their pregnancies altogether uh, during the um, epidemic, but also shortly after because of the life cycle of the virus within um, gametes. But considering that access to contraception is quite difficult in a lot of these countries and often very taboo, and also that abortion is illegal or very heavily restricted in a lot of Latin American countries, and also kind of considering the impact of gender roles and norms in these societies, um, women found that they might actually not have 
the reproductive control to follow these recommendations made by the governments. Um, in our paper, we talk about how Zika posed an opportunity for governments to provide proper access to contraceptives, to revisit restrictive law and policy on abortion access, to ensure safe access to abortion, and do other things like provide more sex education and um, nurture NGOs and activist movements. Um, but uh, sadly, uh, much of the abortion policy in these effective countries actually has remained largely unchanged since the outbreak, despite the fact that Zika highlighted the need for access to safe and informed abortion. Um, and, the th and the thing is that despite disappearing from the media, we've not seen it much appear in the news in recent times, um, Zika is still very much a threat. Um, the number of new cases of Zika since the pandemic is relatively small. So, for example, last year there was nearly 20,000 infections in Brazil, which compared to the more than 200,000 at the peak of the outbreak doesn't seem like much, but it also means that it's still a threat. Um, and moreover, we've also seen in recent times that in countries like um, Angola and Thailand and Cape Verde have also reported newborns with Zika-related microcephaly, so it's still very much a problem. Considering all that, and considering that law is your area of expertise, <laughs> Uh, what role can laws and regulations have in addressing some of the issues we've talked about? Yeah, so I think it's often the case that people look to law and policy as a solution to lots of problems. Um, but for this particular situation, from what I've seen so far, it's actually most important that law just does not act as a barrier to providing safe, informed and empowered choices about sexual and reproductive health care. And so I guess the most obvious example of that is laws that limit abortion. Um, these problems must not be exacerbated by law and policy, but to be honest, I think that the transformation required needs to be much more political and social. Uh, while some parts of societies worldwide have become more open and responsive to sexual and reproductive rights, we still have a long way to go. Um, talking about sex is still a taboo pretty much everywhere. The same goes for women's health too. I'm sure lots of people can relate to having to hide their sanitary products in their school bags growing up or sneaking them in your jeans when you go to the bathroom. We're relatively lucky to have access to these kinds of products here. So imagine the effect of taboos like this um, in global health emergencies where resources are limited and governments are required to respond very quickly. So if people are interested in learning more about this, uh, what resources can they turn to? Do you have any recommendations other than your excellent paper, which will hopefully be coming out shortly? Yeah, so um, the UN obviously have a lot of resources on this. And also, if you'd like to get more into the nitty gritty of it, the WHO have guidelines called Integrating Sexual and Reproductive Health into Health Emergency and Disaster Risk Management, which have a lot of detail. And in general, the WHO website has a lot of really great detail on these things and very recent case studies on things that have been done to tackle sexual and reproductive health and global health emergencies. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me for the second episode of Just Emergencies. It's been very interesting um, to kind of tease out some of those complexities you might not think of at first blush when you're talking about these kind of issues. Um, yeah, look forward to reading your paper when it comes out. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. So that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Episode transcripts are available below the episode description. We also have show notes on our website, 
where we not only list all the references mentioned in this episode, but also give you some further resources if you're interested in learning more about today's topic. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes, please email us at ghe at ed.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter as at Mitra and Rev underscore Richards. Be sure to check out and explore our website, Justice and Global Health Emergencies and Humanitarian Crises. For more great content, just go to www.ghe.law.ed.ac.uk forward slash. Thanks for listening and see you again on the first Monday of the month for the next episode. This podcast is edited and produced by Rebecca Richards and made with funding from the Wellcome Trust.